All right, guys, welcome to the podcast. To start things off, I want to tell you about our brand new sponsor. This week, we finally, actually it was like a week and a half ago, we got our product in from Blue Crown Aquatics. And I got to say, I was extremely impressed with the shrimp. I've seen a lot of shrimp, Jim, you farm shrimp, but these shrimp were particularly awesome. We got um, see-through white crystal shrimp. I've never seen them. I've seen red crystal shrimp. I've seen black crystal shrimp. I've even seen some weird blue crystal shrimp, but where it's completely glass see-through and then white bands, it was mind-blowing. And they have these King Kong shrimp that they sent us that are in your tank that are doing pretty darn well. Doing very well. I did a little water change last night, did a little feeding, and they are, they've got such personality. They come right up to the glass and go, hey, how you doing? Feed me. So before uh, Jim and I really wanted to sponsor anybody, we wanted to do our homework and vetting, and we're proud to say that these guys have certainly shined on their quality of shrimp. So give them a try, bluecarnaquatics.com, and we're here for a promo code. Use promo code AquariumGuys, that's guys with an S, for free shipping on any purchase, no matter what it is. Free shipping? Free shipping. Now, it's not just shipping like an Amazon.com. This is fish, so they have to do you know heat packs, whatever they need to do to get it uh, shipped. And there's a major expense in uh, shipping your product. So for free shipping, Aquarium Guys is the promo code. That is incredible because shipping is usually half the price of your order. Easy. So use that promo code. And then on top of it, to celebrate our new sponsorship, they decided to give us some... $25 gift certificates that we're going to raffle off in a month's time. So we're going to have on our website a form to sign up on AquariumGuysPodcast.com. On the bottom, sign in. You'll have your name, number, address, email, so we can contact you when you win. And that is $25 gift certificates to Blue Crown Aquatics. Thank you so much, guys. And we've got over, we got four of them, correct? We do have four to give away, so... Certainly put it in. The odds are in your favor. Absolutely. And so we want to thank again Blue Crown Aquatics for stepping up and taking us on as a partner. We're going to have their CEO on the podcast here soon. Robbie uh, Chan just won a um, national shrimp competition. So we'll get him on the podcast. But until then, thank you and use the promo code. Sign up and we're ready to give those promo codes out in one month's time. And if you have any shrimp questions... Send us an email, send us a text, send us up some smoke signals. We'll be happy to uh, get them all set up so we can ask Robbie when we get him on our podcast. And so we have a bunch of questions ready for him that you want to know about. And don't forget about the charity Ohio Fish Rescues. We just had Ohio Fish Rescue on last podcast. If you didn't listen to it, go back, listen to that podcast. It was super fun. Those guys are uh, crazy and they love fish. They are more than crazy. Those guys are hilarious. It was one of my favorite podcasts we did. I thought I was going to pee my pants. We were laughing so hard at the very end. And what you hear on the podcast is only a fraction of what we talked to them about. These guys have got so much information, so many great stories. We're going to have them on again. So uh, look back to uh, Big Rich and Ohio Fish Rescue if you haven't heard it yet. OhioFishRescue.com. Donate money, buy a t-shirt, but above all else, call them and tell them you love them. Tell them you love them. Oh, they love those phone calls. They love them. Do it about midnight. <laughs> All right, let's kick the episode. Welcome to the Aquarium Guys podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. All right, guys, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited. I... I I'm a bit of a, a fish nerd at, because I do a podcast, but above all else, I got to say there, there's like a couple people that on our list for the future that we never thought we could get, you know, uh, like Gary Lange, uh, Lang, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's the you know king of rainbow fish. Yes. Um, we just had a passing of the discus king. Jack Watley. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some high prestigious people in the industry, but we are so graced and lucky to have the pseudocanthicus king. Mr. Jim Kitchen, how are you doing today? Not too bad yourself. Oh, we're we're like <laughs> uh, I don't know, kids going to the first concert ever. It's Christmas, man. It's Christmas. It and is, you, and you made it happen for us. Well, I'm glad to be here. Glad to you know, help you out and give you sort of answers you're trying to find. Awesome. So this is a shout out to one of our viewer or listeners that uh, called in. 
um, and sent us an email saying they wanted a Playco podcast. So I literally can't get anybody else. We can't do better, better than this. No, than Mr. Jim Kitchen. So just a quick round of introductions. Jim Colby's my uh, co-host. How you doing out there? And welcome to the show. And Adam Elnashar, how you doing, buddy? Hi, pretty good. How about you guys? We are dippity doing, buddy. Dippity doo doo. So. Again, we mentioned uh, Blue Crown Aquatics in, at the beginning of the podcast as advertisement, but uh, for real, we have $25 gift certificates to give out. Please sign up on the website, but we're still getting uh, a great number of questions. We got a few more this week. We have one of them from Mr. Smith. He uh, reached out to us because he's trying to import fish on his own and realizes that he needs something called a transshipper. Now, this is not the only person that's messaged us recently about trend shippers. So the idea, just to answer a couple questions for the audience listening in, if you're trying to import a fish, you can contact a wholesaler or a distributor that works with companies like we had Seagrass Farms on, on the air. They will import in for you and take care of all the regulatory needs. Otherwise, you have to go and take your tropical fish into a registered trend shipper. That's the only legal way you can bring in international fish from certain countries in because you have to check the stock, make sure it does not uh, come in with anything else, and make sure your product's in a great shape. So he'd been looking for a transshipper that ex accepts for Taiwan. So we gave him a recommendation, but if you're a transshipper listening to this podcast, we're getting a lot more people calling in for a lot of these unique specialty uh countries and we'd like to help some of our listeners so if you're a trend shipper please email us call us at the podcast we'd love to be able to redistribute uh, your information so people can import fish because we did not know that this is really a hidden gem in our community so thank you mr smith for messaging us and hopefully our recommendation works out for you other things is of course our merch store if we still get um, uh, as much as it pains me, the more I talk about it, the more I regret because I have sea orders coming in. But if we get 20 unique customers going to our merch store, and I will still buy the crop top and oh, no, take a picture not. for you, sir. I, 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 will, I will buy a t-shirt so you don't put on the crop top, honestly. But that, I give the audience what they want. <laughs> the audience is not seeing what I'm seeing here, Rob. I'm sitting in front of you. Nobody wants to see you in a crop top. Hey, you're the one that gave me eight loaves of bread, all right? <laughs> Fifteen. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to keep this uh, short so we can get uh, right in with Jim because I'm, I'm super excited. So, Jim, thanks again for coming on uh, the podcast. We have so many questions for you, but I really want this podcast to be a topic, uh, you know, covering Placos as a whole. But, uh, again, your specialty is, uh, the I believe it's genus Pseudocanthicus? Correct. Excellent. So let's just start with background on uh, on you first. So, you know, when did you start getting into the tropical fish hobby? I was pretty much born into it when my, um, you know, when I was young, we always had tanks in the, um, in our basement and, you know, the old stainless steel rims with the slate bottoms and everything else. But yeah, I mean, for, you know, from, from as early as from that memory, we always had, um, you know, tanks in the basement. You know, my dad was in the Coast Guard, so he was always interested in the water. And the only time I did not have aquariums was when I was in college because I was gone too long. Then, you know, I immediately got out of college and before I got married or anything else like that, I had another 125-gallon tank in my apartment and started off from there again. So it's just something that's always been part of my life. There's so many people that uh, start off with uh, small tanks and then just keep on going and going. And uh, that's how you know it's passion. We were talking with uh, Big Rich and even... Uh, Heck, my story, Jim's story, everybody just keeps starting with the small tank, and they just, it's not enough. It's just never enough. Never enough. What made you, I'm assuming the Pseudocanthicus, of course, is your favorite uh, fish. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as far as like Plucos, I, I, I like other fish. Some people get so focused on one, you know, only one that they lose sight of. You know, the beauty is of the others. You know, I've had discus, I've bred them, I've done quarries, you know, I've done cardinals, done, um, you know, bettas. You know, bettas, those were the first thing I did back in the 80s. I think it was so. It's just, um, but I focused on the suitors because it was basically a challenge. So Auntie David said, "Hey, no one has spawned these in the world yet. Why don't you go be? If you're so good, why don't you give it a shot?" And that's what got that whole thing on pseudocanthus going. You know, the cactus puckles, the spiny ones. That was the first thing you started researching. Uh, yeah, you know, because you know, I, was, I was looking for something. I was looking for a new challenge. And Chris Bennis, a good friend of mine, was a smart aleck. I said, "Well, hey, you know." I mean, I know what he says, well, hey, if you're so good, 
why don't you spawn them? No one else has, so that's what got it, you know. Started looking at them, and back at the time in the, what was it, it was like the 08, 09, there really wasn't a whole lot being imported at the time from Brazil, so just finding some was kind of hard back then. And just started from there. So literally started getting a reputation because you had skills for breeding. They said, well, why don't you give it a try? And clearly you had a knack for this, and it just went downhill from there. Pretty much. <laughs> or uphill, depending on how you look at it. Exactly. So it was, yeah. a, it was a challenge from a buddy that said, if you're so dang good, then you go ahead and try it, and then you showed up it. the world. You showed off the world, exactly. Yeah, well, I was thinking it was about fourth or fifth by the time I got, you know, the adult pair to spawn. There was a couple over in England and in um, Greece that did it first. And, um, you know, then there's, there's some people over in Germany and a couple up in Sweden. And then I, you know, I, was, I, was, I was in the top five, I'd say, for, for, doing, you know, for doing the um, 114s or the, you know, um, you know the, the, the Leopardus. Or the ones that look like, you know, the, the leopard spots. So before we go too far, I just want to do some basics for a lot of the beginner listeners. So the you know Placo variety is defined by an L series of numbering scheme, and the L numbers um, started off you know just a, a few, and now they have a massive list that's published online. Even Wikipedia only goes up to L six hundred, but uh, that list has been modified. Am I not correct to uh, include a lot more than just six hundred uh, varieties of Placo? I've actually lost track of the number, to be honest. It's been exploding so much again in the last couple of years because every time they find a new river with a with a with a pleco, even though it may look like one they've already found, they're trying to you know, put a unique placeholder for it in case it is different. But yeah, you are right. I mean, that's why it's like with the zebra plecos, you know, the forty sixes and all those sub numbers. There's an argument over whether this one's a one seventy two, this one's a one seventy three. I'm just throwing out some numbers with. Because they all look just a little bit different. So it's gone from a carefully controlled numbering system to sort of like an open open range right now. Well, when you keep finding species, you got to categorize them somehow. But the L number system is a you know, scientific classification for these uh, type of quote-unquote catfish. But this was started uh, from what I can find is about 88. Is that correct? 1988? Somewhere about there, yeah. There's actually there's actually two that were started. There was L and then there was the LDA numbers. But the um, pu- the the publisher of the L numbers had a larger population than the LDA sets sort of you know caught on rather than the than the sitting in the smaller one. So it was originally published trying to categorize uh, placos from a German magazine called DATZ. Uh, I'm not going to try to even pronounce what that was supposed to stand for, but again, that's really where it, uh, it took off. Is the Aquarium and Terrarium magazine. Since then, it's now definitely the common name because they have pet shop names. Like a lot of the Tetras will be called something like a hockey stick Placo, or not hockey stick, a Tetra. The Penguin Tetra. Or called Penguin Tetra. Yep. So there's a lot of uh, pet store naming schemes that do not follow any type of structure. So this is really the integrity of keeping Placos in, in a line. And... I think I was talking with you this uh, last week, and you sent me a Placo, and it was four digits long. L. <laughs> 10,000. Yeah, L. 2464. And that actually was is a is a natural hybrid between a, we used to call them a flame Placo, which is a 24, I think it's called the Batinga now, and the Hystrix. So you took two very similar um you know, Pseudocanthagus, and you end up with this mega monster that is just gorgeous. So no new, so no new, what, 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 what to do with hybrids? So someone just came up with the scheme, well, let's take the two numbers and, you know, throw it together. So no, that's, that's not even in any book anywhere. That's more or less a, a trade um, placeholder right now. No. And in fact, that, that is valid, that actually, those hybrids do exist. So you, you say natural hybrid. Is that something that is found in nature then? Or yeah, is that something that yeah, somebody's yeah, put? Yeah, yeah, both of them are in the same river systems. Oh, okay. That totally makes sense now. Yeah. Usually what happens is these things are so expensive and so rare that they go directly over to China or Japan. And the one I think I sent you was about a $5,000 fish. So that, that's yeah, crazy. No one no, 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 no in the U.S. is going to see that fish for a long time. Not unless it's stuffed in a museum. 
<laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, that's that's a lot of money. Um, what is an average price? I know we were watching on your on uh, on TV or on the YouTube. You do the cactus plecos. What is an average price of a cactus pleco for people that wanted to, to try this? I mean, I know it's a it's a three five three to five year commitment just to get them up to adulthood, but can you tell yeah, me? I mean, it's it's all over the board. I mean, that, that was one of the, that was one of the big goals that I had was you know breeding um, the, these these you know, plecos was to have a, a you know stock available in the United States that people could get for a reasonable price. And you know, I mean, for you, you can look like a like a, a twenty four, twenty five flame or a scarlet, and you're talking you know two hundred fifty bucks for a six inch fish, you know, on the open market. Wow. And for me, I, I promised everyone I would sell all of my fry at two inches or all my juveniles at under two, you know, two and a half inches for under a hundred bucks. So like when I went to Cataclysm, um, not Cataclysm, the sorry, the other one, um, in the East Coast. I guess I'm not familiar. So again, so that's the other problem. So you can your prices all over the place right now, with depending on which ones you're trying to get. So again, more deep dive on the topic from a beginner standpoint. Placos are traditionally sold in the hobby and were most commonly sold as like the Florida Placo that was sold at uh, Walmart for so many years. Now Walmart is no longer selling fish, but uh, the most um, popular Placo that we see in you know common uh, trade is the Bristlenose Placo because they have a nice appetite for a range diet. And they stay around four inches, so they fit in a lot of different uh, aquarium environments. But I'm going to go with just a couple of the beginner questions before we go into super deep dives. Um, we had, why should no one buy a, what we call Florida Placo, unless they have a large tank? So how large is, like, some of the largest Placos you've ever seen? I had a 24-inch um, Florida Placo. In one, of my, in one of my tanks, well, I got it on. I traded it. You know, got it, got it with the tank that I traded in. And you're right. There's nothing you can do. They just eat everything in sight. They don't look all that pretty in my, you know, my eyes. And you, you know, what are we gonna do with them? <laughs> um, by the same token, that's one of the reasons why the Pseudocanthus species is not, or the genus is not widely imported, and a lot of them is because they tend to get larger as well. You know, like 12 inches to 14, and you need at least like a 125 gallon tank. To comfortably house them, and that's a that's a pretty big commitment for most people. So, some of these uh, placos that we've seen, even uh, done in farms, you know, they've been the length of our arms for the Florida placos. So we get uh, as far as rescues, and I think we talked a little bit about this with uh, Big Rich. We get in quite a few of these massive placos because they put them in a ten or twenty gallon tank, and now they've literally extended the length where they're curving inside the tank and can't turn around. Keeping to four inches is the place you want to be but um let's talk about basics of care for pseudocanthicus or any other placo so when you're doing this what diet do you use to number one encourage breeding but also uh just for general uh youth care well for me being a practical and like, like somewhat like an easy doing a person um i like to prepare foods i've used hokari a lot and i used um thera a lot for, me, for the for the pellets and then Kari's got this beautiful thing called massivore pellets. And each pellet is, I think it's 2.8 goldfish in protein. And when you get to some of these larger um, suitors, you're looking at maybe 8 to 10 pellets per adult per day when you're getting them into breeding shape. So, you know, it's a lot of that. If there's go live fish or, you know, fish flies, it'd be a whole lot more waste in the tank than getting them in, you know, in, in a commercially prepared food. So some of the people uh, that I've talked to, you know, firmly believe that these are, you know, essentially um, vegetarians or herbivores, but uh, instead they are, I forget the term for it, but they are uh, feed on omnivorous diet of things that are decaying. So decaying uh, litter, um, wood, algae, um, dead uh, dead co corpses in the rivers or waters, but they do have protein, and you using massive ore pellets really does prove that. It's not just algae wafers. You feed them exclusively. You give them a high-protein diet. Yeah, actually, when you get a little bit larger, if you, if you get off from a, an algae wafer or, or if you get from meat, they will ignore the algae wafer. They're primarily carnivores who are made into omnivores when there's not the food available. So rather than – so when they go to the buffet – and the prime rib is out, then they'll have a salad. It's if they have a little bit of room left over. <laughs> That's a good analogy. So what do you feed yeah. the uh, the fry when uh, they're hatched? 
Well, I used to start off with the traditional way of, you know, baby brine and, you know, some of the cultures and things like that. Well, I found these buggers were just way too hungry and a little bit larger to, to deal with that. And I was, I was serving them. So I just went with a, a Thera A granule and just, you know, made it into a little bit of paste. And for about four days, they're already gnawing on the, on the, on the granules themselves. Just let me let them go after it. So again, just meat, 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 meat. You know, forget that green stuff. So what kind of growth do you do you get on a on a fish when it's already eaten pellets at four days? How fast do they do they, do they grow? I mean, are you getting some substantial growth that first few months? Yeah, and for me, I was usually targeting seven to eight months to go from a hatch to selling them. You know, it's like two and a quarter, two and a half inches, but that requires a lot of water changes. You know, people think about you know the food as the input when there's also these trace and trace minerals and trace elements that come with the water. And so you need both, both you know, in combination, to get the optimal growth. And and in your system, from from when I was watching, you have a drip system in, in most of your tanks, correct? Yeah. And how many gallons do you change out per day or per hour? How does how do you measure <laughs> that? Uh, I was a, for a while. I was changing two hundred gallons a day, automatically. Now, and how many tanks are you running in your in your uh, fish room? Well, I had um, five five 190s. I had like four 125s, and then I had, you know, for the smaller smaller fish, you know, growth fish, I have 30s and 50s. But all told, I was up to, I think, 2,800 gallons with a tank, water, and 300 gallons of storage water. And you have a designated fish room. Is it uh, in your home then? Yeah, yes, yeah, two, two, two lower levels of my basement. Okay. I have, a, I have a quad with an extra step in it, so it makes it kind of interesting. Interesting. And so you, you live in, in Michigan, correct? Yeah. And so so you're dealing with the same type of weather we're, we're dealing with over here in Minnesota, and so you're trying to keep those tanks warm. And I noticed that you had some uh, really cool heating options and how you uh, double down to make sure that you don't have any uh, problems with heat. Can you tell us about that? Well, the traditional one, one heater per tank, and they would get stuck on or stuck off, and they would freeze or they would you know, boil. And um, so I then went to using two you know, two heaters, and then they kind of worked better. But I ended up finally going with a, a a separate controller for the temperature. And looking at at the market at the time, you know, there was really nothing very effective, effective or reliable in the hobby. So I actually went with a heating and cooling commercial grade, uh, you know, thermostat control for fifty bucks. And so I do there is I you've got that with the controller. I would wire it up with a an extension cord. I'm just going to put the extension cord in the middle. I'm going to plug in the power on one side, and then on the coming out, I'd have the power strip with an on-off switch. So I could if I, if I need to turn off the heaters, I just throw the switch, and you know everything was done. It was very visually oriented, so you could see if there was a if the heat was on, the light was on. That makes a lot of sense. So I have another one other loaded question uh, from one of our uh, um, viewers about uh, Placos. They're so curious on, they know, know that there's a lot of different varieties, but they still don't understand why Placos are so expensive. He was, uh, I've had a lot of people reach out to us for Zebra Placos, for instance, and the price of those have skyrocketed and they're finally now beginning to stabilize because they're being bred um, at, su at supply in the United States. There's but, some commercial breeders that have stepped forward. At a high level, we know that, you know, the reason that why certain Placos cost so much is because there's only some that exist. But, you know, how many different rivers or, you know, subsidiaries have Pseudocanthicus or other breeds of Placo? You'd be astounded. When I started doing, again, the additional research of trying to figure out, you know, what other, how to breed the other, you know, the other Pseudos. Because, again, you, you know, I start off with the cat, with the, the Leopardos, which is, you know, the 114. There's literally like 20, 25 other known variants that just some of them don't even have numbers yet. So, it, it, but you just can't, you know, um, give give the same parameters and have the same effect. So, I started looking through, and you'd find, you know, here's one from that river, and it's just widespread. I mean, there's there's still finding new fish every day in, in in Brazil, so it's kind of hard to say just how many there are. But I know, for example, there's six different. Um, you know, you know, um, um, drawing blanks. Sorry, uh, like there's like there's six variations of the one fourteens and the six hundreds. Just go to a different river, go to a different spot, dip your neck, and there they are. So this, the Sudakanthicus is throughout all of the all of the entire Amazon basin. 
They're all over the place. So, uh, my wife's a nurse, and we were, we were watching uh, watching you on YouTube uh, on Ted's Fish Room. And if, if people haven't seen that, I highly encourage you to watch this. It was uh, so interesting. But you do DNA testing on fish and doing mouth swabs yeah. on, on fish. And I'm going, and my wife looks at me, and, and she's a nurse, and she looks at me and just nods her head and goes, crazy, man, crazy. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it, was, it was really thankful for the crazy people around the world who sent me samples. It's not the easiest thing to grab these guys with these big old spines and not get your hand impaled on them, but people did it. And, and so what have you you found out? You found out that, that many of these fish in the river are related but still different? Yeah. Basically, the, I gave a presentation at um, CatCon was it four years ago now, and there was four, four distinct subgroups of the pseudocanthagus. There's the the black ones with white spots and you know, brown spots. You've got the plain muddy, muddy looking ones, and then you've got the ones that look like, you know, like they look like, you know, the pumas and the, you know, the, the cats. I usually call, it, call them the cats because some of the patterns look like leopard pets. Some look like, you know, panther spots. So it's just sort of jungly, you know, naming each one after some, you know, some big um, jungle you know, African cat or whatever. And so they fall into those four groups. The interesting thing is one of them, which are, are the one most popular, which is are the, we call them the Titanics and the Typhoons and the uh, Patinga and the Scarlets. You know, those, are real, those are the ones that get to be the real big ones and the really bright orange color. It turns out they're, they're, they're an undescribed genus. They actually are not part of the Pseudocanthagus genus. And you, 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 have to, you have to look very deep to actually see that. So that's a big surprise that you know, you know, people are just trying to understand. So what yeah, makes two, what makes them part of the Pseudocanthagus genus and something different? Well, physically, the difference is all of the unique group have got long trailers on their fins. You know, people love the, you know love the trailers like the one video I you know, clip I sent you where I had a four inch Titanic with a five inch you know five inch you know trailers on the fins. Absolutely, beautiful. So all of those with the long with the long you know trailers are there. They're in the same type of water. They all tend to be the larger ones, like the hysterics, which grow to be, you know, three feet long. So they're the larger ones, the heavier ones, the bulkier ones. But then if you actually look at their eating habits, they're slightly different on their eating habits. And then because I was lucky enough to have 17 different species in my basement at one time, I could look at all of them, you know, side by side by side. And you can sort of see obvious differences, where if you, you know, just look at a picture, you can't tell the differences. And the interesting thing is, the, the, what are, which are the hardest to spawn are the 24s, the 25s, the Titanics, and the Typhoons in, you know, in aquariums. There's some guys in Singapore that are saying have some great success with it, but they're very, very hard to do compared to, you know, Cactus Pleco or a um, polka dot, you know, polka dot pseudo. So I think there's enough information to prove both genetically and, um, you know, taxonomy and then also habitat-wise that they are distinctly different groups. So let's talk about some of your accomplishments that you've done. So again, you got into Placos as a more or less a dare. How did you try to breed them? And clearly, it just worked out for you. But uh, let's go from there. You know, what, what uh, did you uh, do? A lot of scientific work for Pseudocanthicus. You know, tell us about what uh, you've accomplished in all this time. Well, I wanted to learn as much about them as I could. And then there's other there's other thing is you, you don't work in a vacuum, as you pointed out, and you know, there's a lot of people in, um, like in Holland and Sweden and um, Norway. You know, Christopher Frostender, he was he started he was he was interested in them before I was, and so we we used to talk quite a bit and he, we compared notes. And then there's Oli Polson from um, um, John Plank. He's gonna kill me for this. <laughs> That's okay. It's all right. We, um, we're in Minnesota. There's a lot of Olis. <laughs> yeah, and and a few Linas. Yeah. So for a while we were in polite competition to see who could who could get up to ten first, and we were both at nine. And he he's down he was down in Brazil and he spawned his tenth one, so he won that race. Um, but again, just started collecting knowledge about him because you get each one was is different, and I, that's why I was able to be, have such success with the different species as I would see, look and find out their location, their environment. Being an engineer by background and you know I, you know I always want to find as much detail as, as I can. 
the detailed approach, you know, just paid off for me. So how many different species have you discovered? Um, I wouldn't say I've discovered any new species, but I've had a few. Identified. I'm sorry? <laughs> Identified or labeled, I should put. Um, none, officially, because I'm not, you know, a professional, so I have to find a, find someone in the field who can do that for me. But, again, the finding out that the that the, that the one subgroup is it's an entirely new genus as opposed to the Pseudocanthicus, to my knowledge, no one else knows about that other than, you know, who I've shared that with, and I'm being a little more open about it because I'm trying to at least get the, you know, the DNA tree published somewhere so even, you know, so even the hobbyists can take a look at it and see what makes sense. Um, but the big, the big thing I've learned a difference on is, you know, people, people usually look at like an evolution or a change over time with, you know, fish, you know, if you start off in this one area of the world and over like, you know, hundreds of, or thousands of years, the fish migrate, you know, you know, to elsewhere and then they are look entirely different throughout the entire Amazon basin and into Peru and even up into, you know, um, Guiana and Suriname, the DNA is so similar that they're, they're, you, can, you can almost like mix and match and get one fish that looks like another one. And that's what's happening now is you've got some people who are looking at some um, um, some 114s in a river outside of um, Manaus. And it looks like it almost looks like a scarlet. You know, it's got beautiful red lines, blue lines, purple lines. And I've, I've had some 600s which look like worm lines. They almost look like 333s now. Just because, I, I, you know, you get you know, it's 1 to 2,000 eggs per hatch. You oh did, my God! A bit of genetic, you, so every time you get, you, you get, I call it an odd throw. Yeah, you know, if you get a thousand fry that grow, hatch, usually there's one or two that are totally different. Well, you I mean, two thousand fish you're looking at. You're sitting there rolling the dice on something. Yeah, like I think if you looked in the um, on my YouTube channel, you see I actually had a, I had a black and white um, pseudocanthus for about three months. Look, look, look like a forty-six. So just to clarify for the listeners, we uh, your YouTube channel. Is pseudo smart on YouTube? Yeah. And just to uh, clarify spelling on the channel, it's P S E U D A smart. So certainly check that out on YouTube. And you said it was on another aquarium channel as well. You had had a uh, another I've video been on a Facebook page with the same name. Yes, and then you've been interviewed by some other people too that that have had on their um, Ted. Yeah, Ted Judy. Yeah. Yeah, Ted's Fish Room. And Ted's Fish Room. There we go. That's yeah, what I was looking Ted for. Ted Judy. And, uh, you know, Ted's been around forever and uh, is a smart guy. And uh, he interviewed you, and it looked like it was part of it was done um, in your home, and the other part of it was probably done over in your, uh, like, a hotel or something, right? Like yeah, a, like, exactly. Like at a show yeah, or there's, something? There's, there's done during one of the conventions over Korea. And, and at that, uh, you, had sp- you had spoken at that convention, and... Uh, Apparently had a very good uh, a good talk the way it sounded. So, so we're gonna see you in the next TED Talks. Is that where it's gonna happen? I don't know. Maybe I've got other stories to tell as well. Obviously. Well, we want to hear them, man. <laughs> so yeah. before we get too far, you mentioned about uh, handing off the DNA. Um, I think you mentioned another a conversation that DNA sequencing was part of your forte as well. Well, no, it's my brother's. Um, he's um, he's his, his degree and specialty is you know. Um, um, his, bio, his biochemistry, and he was a manager of a genetics lab. So it was all those things that just, you know, sort of, um, provenance came into view or circumstance where, again, you know, someone said, hey, you know, prove to me that this one's different than the other, and I'm trying to figure it out. And so with my brother, he said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing this DNA testing for these other people. And then this little light bulb came on, and he thought it was crazy enough of an idea to try, and his boss thought it was a crazy enough idea to try. So, so you sequenced the DNA of Pseudocanthicus? Yeah. A hundred, we had over a hundred different samples, uh, sample fish, and we got probably seventy-five usable DNA sequences out of them. Yeah, we were just going. When my wife and I were watching this, we're going, "Where do you go to get DNA sampling for a fish? Is, <laughs> is, is it like, you know, fishdna, t- you know, dot com or what?" We're a very unique group of people, but we're not that connected. So <laughs> you having a brother that just does that for you is literally the perfect thing. The other thing which is very odd about it is to talk about you know cheek swabs is the traditional way of doing DNA sampling even today with, with the um, with the you know, the the skull, you know the, you know called the traditional way is to use like fin clippings or, or skin clippings you know, take a, a dried sample well with technology advancing itself that's that's too old and too slow and takes too much time to get results so the 
you just like with you just like with you know humans the 23 me project they give you a mouth swab where you, so you spit to a tube you just take the swab rub it inside their mouth and enough of their of, you know um skin flakes off that you get together the dna so and have you would, have you had ahead, your so. own um dna sequence uh, i can't officially say that yes or no. <laughs> oh okay there you go yeah <laughs> But you know, some people would argue with the say, saying, "Well, you, you, you've got a, you've got a tank full of fish. How do you know that you're getting the right DNA?" Well, we've done that. You know, proven it where we've got like five different pseudocanthus with like three different other species. We had a we had a ancestors, uh, we had a megalancestor in there, all mixed in the tank, and we swabbed the mouths of each one, and you know, each one of each of them came out correctly. So let's go through that just just to walk through for listeners. I'm going to start taking DNA samples of my fish. CSI. I'm going to CSI this shit, right? <laughs> I'm going to pull out a two-foot Pleco out of my tank, hold him with a towel. Angry Pleco. And you're going to get a buddy to grab a giant cotton swab and just go around that suction cup and then put it into a DNA in me to your brother? Pretty much. That's what we used to do, yeah. Were you drinking at the time? Oh, I'm my God. <laughs> Is like that you- on YouTube? <laughs> Um, no, people wanted me to put it on there, and I never got around to it. it, wasn't, it honestly, I was going to do that, but then I figured it'd, it'd scare more people because it looks worse than it actually is. You know, once you get a cactus, once you get one of these plecos upside down, they're sort of like a shark. They, after about 10 seconds, they do tend to slow, you know, slow down. And they'll, they'll calm down. If you put it in their mouth, a lot of them will suck out like a lollipop. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's a visual. I think we need uh, two videos now, one of you swabbing and two of them sucking on a lollipop. We need to see this. We need, yeah. That would be the best T-shirt of all time. No. No, it's not. <laughs> so, but, I, just, I, I got a quick go question. How, how long do these fish live? I mean, you've had some of these fish for years and years and years. I know at the Shedd Aquarium, they've have a, they had a pair of scarlets in there, which are going on 20-plus years, and they're still, they're still looking strong. And they're you know, like two and a half feet long, you know, foot wide. Um, you know, there was, they were larger than my calf, than, than, than my leg. So do, do they ever have any luck just randomly that they breed for them or not? No, they haven't, they've, they've set the right environment or the conditions for it. It's way too cold for that particular species. Um, usually like the scarlets and the, you know, in the, in the flames, 24, 25. And again, I'm using the old names that they've been using for so long. It's hard to remember the new, newly assigned names that were, came out like a year or two ago. Um. But you know they, they they like you know 90 degree water to spawn in 92 degree water. It's crazy when you look at where some of these streams are and some of these rivers are. Um, I actually had one tank I'll be honest overheated over the 97 degrees and I had three six three um, you know um, you know 600 pluckers in there looking hot but they were fine. They were they ate a they were ate a heck of a lot of food. It was like put my hand up against the tank and my hand jumped back like wait a minute something's wrong here. So these are not warm blooded creatures. If you have the tank that hot you, you saying they're going to eat food is an understatement they'll chew yeah. through it because they you know metabolism has gone through the roof yeah so I, I continue to pick on jimmy because he has this curse right he's had a lot of different placos over the years but he has a curse that he just can't breed them then suddenly you know we'll take the same placo the same you know placo uh, tunnel and we'll talk about breeding uh, ask more questions here in a minute but then suddenly they just breed and that might be the solution jimmy I keep my tank hotter. Yeah, I'm just gonna. I was just thinking that uh, myself. I've taken some fish that that I've had that have won't breed for me. I give him the rods, and he calls me up two weeks later and goes, "No, I no, got the same day, the same day, the same day." <laughs> that's because new I, tank and just drop a clutch. Yeah, and that's because I that's because I fed him so well. I'm I'm giving myself credit. Yes, pat yourself on the back. You yeah. fed him before they went to Rob's house. Exactly. Yeah. Rob and I. Well, apart- our, na- well, our neighbors. We, we've, I've also discussed with friends, we, we, we tend to call it possibly a stress spawn, or just a change in the environment made him do it. It wasn't necessarily that it was the perfect environment. It was just such a change. So just that's like, why, so, so why we, we say, if you get two spawns, then, you, then you've accomplished something. See, just like me and my wife, you know, the a first few date? years ago in the car. <laughs> Nobody wants It's a different it. environment. It's it, a different environment. It car. was at a, you know, public uh, park. We were in the woods. What can you say? I wish I had some really bad porn music to play as you're talking about this but we don't want to hear about that um i apologize jim <laughs> check out the youtube video before so i think this is a good segue to talk about breeding so generally uh <laughs> my lord generally play goes oh, don't worry we played boys to men before on uh, one of the other podcast clips got a lot of laughs but uh so let's t- let's talk about the beginning so you ha- you find a pair and most uh placo species you know how are they difficult to sex i mean with bristle noses you can find that you know males have the long spikes females have the shorter bits but how do you sex normal pseudocanthicus 
first thing most people talk about is the is the the, 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 the hairs and the spines on the males are much heavier than the females. They call um, I think it's orodontal growth, which is on the pectoral fins. So you and said hair. It, yeah, like, it's like very, it's like bristle here. It's very, um, it's very sharp, very pointy. Um, and then, uh, but, but the, what I find is most reliable is the overall shape. The males tend to look like torpedoes from the from the top. You know, very, you know, blunt head, narrow body, you know, narrowing towards the tail. Where you know the the female fish because they have eggs, you know, they tend to have a wider wider midsection. Sorry, but that's just the way it is. You know, I'm not being sexist. They're they're built for it. <laughs> Can can, right. can you pick out a male from a? I mean, I I understand if you have them side by side, or a group of them. But are you able just to look at a single one and pick it out? Some species, yes. Others, no. You know, these the scarlets and the flames, twenty four and twenty fives. Most of those rules go out the window because I've actually had females which were he more heavily, uh, you know, growth and thicker plates in the males. So it's you know, the, some of those there's a little bit of confusion going on as to what's what, but. Usually, um, like for me, after seeing hundreds and hundreds of, of fry, I could sex them like one and three quarter inches. I could pretty much sex them accurately just by looking at them. That's not a lot of size either. No, that is very small. When uh, now you talk about your fry, do you sell your fry? Uh, yeah, I did. Um, that's one thing also to clarify. Part of why I got involved with Ocean uh, or Ohio Rescue was um, because of my condition with having Parkinson's. I finally had to you know, let go of the day-to-day -day side of, you know, keeping the fish. So after looking around for a long time, because, you know, you just don't want to give your, your equipment to people, you know, who aren't, aren't deserving, I, I came across, you know, Ohio Fish Rescue and Rich and, um, you know, um, you know he, they seem to be very genuine and caring about it. So they basically came in and that's, that's why I, I have two videos with them where they're taking all of the equipment out of my house. It took them, you know, a day in a 26-foot trailer or 26-foot 20, um, U-Haul to remove all of the tanks and everything that I had in my fishing that had accumulated over the years. And yeah, you know, Rich and, and Josh, we had them on last week. We, we had a great conversation with them. They had nothing but great things to say about you. And, and they were the ones that uh, hooked us up uh, so we could have this conversation with you. And for the people that are um, listening and stuff, you had a kind of downsize back in the day or, or what happened? Well, you know, it's, it's in part of my blogs that they, I've had Parkinson's for 16 years, and each year it, get, you know, it got progressively worse and worse, so I was able to do less and less. That's why I had, like, the automatic system set up so that it would take the workload off of me, you know, just doing the daily stuff. But, um, you know, it got to the point where taking, going down there every day got to be almost, you know, it's an impossible thing to do. And I'd seen so many people who you know, passed away and they left their wives with, you know, two rooms of fish tanks, and I, I swore I wouldn't do that to her, so... Um, I spent a year finding the right place for all of the for all the all the fish that I had, because again, you know, there's people who want to just throw money at them, but you know that's not that, that's not the right person to give some of these fish. Some of these fish that I had have never been in the U.S. before, and probably won't be for you know for a long time. So I found homes for them, you know, with people who I thought it could still be a chance of raising them and in fact breeding them. And then once I got the fish gone, except for the one pair that you know, they're going to grow up, they then had all this all these tanks, and you know, hey, you know, one eighty or one ninety. That's the magic tank everyone's looking for, right? Yep. Uh, used. Yeah, they're they are hard to find and use. That's for sure. You never see them very often. Yeah, so, so I had five of them there, so with stands and everything else. Do you have any left on hand now at home? Nope, everything's gone. I've got some heaters and dust and some dirt piles. If anyone wants those, they're welcome to take them. So now uh, you sent me some pictures, and now you're getting back into uh, you know local fishing. Well, those are from before as well. I hope to get back into local fishing because I you know I can't give everything up. Got to have some vices. Awesome, but those but those are usually charters. You know, they're gonna it takes the burden off of me to have to go out and you know, prepare things. So I just do a couple charters a year with friends. That's that's one of the best ways to do it, especially if you don't know the area. Like I've traveled, uh, we went to uh, Florida with Jim, and we we had a fun charter, and that's really the way to to go about it. It's all set up for you. They know the hot spots. You don't have to uh, you know waste a day just trying to find the fish. It's uh it's a it's a great way. And they like to drink while they were on the charter, so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, like with like St. Clair, with the you know with our DNR, they're actively working to to introduce other species, you know, for fun for the sports fishermen. And if you notice on the bottom, there, there was actually pink salmon that were down there. They decided, you know, a couple of years ago, hey, let's throw them in for a few years and see how they do. Well, you know, you, and you can you can catch pink salmon, or um, in Lake St. in Lake St. Clair. So I know this is off topic, but are they breeding in Lake St. Clair? 
No, they they don't they don't you know the old runs they had many many years ago in the eighties they had limited spawns but they never were sustainable so it was all you know introduced. But uh, they did the... spawn. Oh yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, you know, I, I ended up with like in the eighties I had like a twenty-seven pound you know king salmon. You talk about having fun, you know, in a freshwater lake. Come on, really. <laughs> that's incredible. So getting back to, to breeding, so sure. sexing we, we've established, but uh, the actual process. So is there any, uh, you know, nipping or way you're seeing their breeding? And what do you use? Because generally placos um, like to burrow or have some sort of cave to breed in. So what do you use for these larger pseudocanthicus? Well, I had to get real creative. For a while, I w- was using the clay pipe that you or get from you know, like a, a, a chimney store or a, you know, your local builder. But then once they got over four and a half inches in diameter, you know, the finding larger pipes is, gets to be a difficulty. So I ended up finding out, I would call up the um, art, uh, the art offices of a university like University of Michigan. I got a hold of the art department and found out who did large clay objects. And that's how I started getting my larger, larger caves made. So why do you use clay versus other material like PVC? The, some people like PVC, but it doesn't breathe because if you look at again trying to look at the natural environment, most of these caves are dug into the side of the of the river, right? And so water flows through, the nutrients flow through there. So if you have PVC or if you have plastic, you basically have a dead spot, and the only only, only circulation you get from the you know, from them wagging their, their fins to try and move fresh air in there. And you know, in Europe, you know, a lot of people would lose lose the female because the male would be jamming the female up into the very end of the cage. She wouldn't breathe and she'd suffocate. So I never. It's the it, female it, breeding as well, not just the eggs. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, basically, the female has to be in there to lay the male. Um, she'll leave, and he'll go in there and he'll fertilize the egg. So I've also heard that it's a texture thing as well that they don't like to breed, or even if they do, it doesn't bond the egg well unless it has a textured surface. Is that true? Um, I find unglazed, glazed, glazed. I'd say that's true. Unglazed. A moderate surface they like, too rough, it cuts these eggs, too smooth, it, you know, they can't get enough of a grip. And that's glazed on the PVC is what you're talking about, correct? No, no, I'm, I'm talking about, I'm talking about on the pots, the, the clay pots. Gotcha, gotcha. So they, they, they glaze the pots, which make it kind of like a, a hard varnish on it, which is it's too smooth then. Yeah, I don't right. buy a lot of pot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, by listening to this podcast, people would probably argue that whole concept <laughs> about that. Hey, man, that's not nice. So, so again, it seals it seals the hole, and there's you know, not a lot of movement. And so, so that, 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 that becomes an advantage there. And then also, the other humorous part is these fish have to learn how to spawn. And so, what they do is the case size is critical because the male has to be able to, to hold the female in place. And then, um, you know, so then they can figure out how what makes basically she has to be put into the into the mood to make the, for the for the transition to start to start developing the eggs and you know and then and then hatching or you know um, you know expelling the eggs. They actually they have to learn how the whole process works. And it sounds crazy, but you know the first time it'll take like five, six, seven days, and they you know they'll get frustrated. And then if, so if the cave's wrong shape or wrong you know wrong size. He can't. He can't use his fins to hold her in the right place. And I mean, the, the scouts took, I think, like seven caves before they finally got the right cave that they figured it all out. And then you get to the second spawn, and it only maybe takes four or five days. And then I've had some of my older fish. You know, I had um, my six hundred pair. They, they were spawning for ten years. They would be done in like three hours. You know, they look at each other going going to the cave three hours. They have eggs. So, what size cave do you recommend for the size placo? So, if you have, say, let's make something up, a ten-inch uh, placo. What, what size cave entrance and length are you looking for? You need to have the depth about an inch to two inches deeper than the length of the, length of the fish. So you'd be like 11 or 12 inches. And then the height and the width, it depends upon, if you look at the, you look at the male, if his, if his, if his dorsal fin is, to, is totally erect, totally up, you want it to only be like 75% up. So if, like, let's say if, you put from, if, his, if the tip of his fin is three inches tall, you'd want like two and a half inches. For this height of the cave, that way you can, you can use it to wedge against. And the same thing with the pectoral fins. You don't want the pectoral fins all the way open, but you want them like seventy percent open. So, he, so he can get some grip in there, so you can kind of hold right. hold everything down. That makes total sense. And who thinks about these things? But people like yourself. I mean, it takes hours. It takes hours of watching. I mean, you just literally have to look at it, and it just you know, people said I was you know I was insane, and like, well, 
that's just the way I, I, I solve problems for my life and for, as a career, you know, the impossible ones. And then you got to look at all the little details. So when you, when you went to the art department and asked them to make you these caves, did they look at you going, what are you talking well, about? I showed them, I showed them the pretty pictures. They go, oh, look at the pretty fish. And then it's a whole different story. So, the, so then they stepped up and helped you out. Yeah. That, and so, I mean, I know you can go out and buy professional caves that are made by, by cave people, but they're not cheap. I mean, I bought some small no. ones that I've paid 15 bucks for wholesale. And, yeah. and yours are the size of a man's arm for the most part. Yeah, I was, some of them I was paying like 40 bucks for because, again, I, but again, if you don't get the right size cave, you know, you don't get them to spawn. Right. And it's just frugal to you. Uh, spend all that time if you can't get a, a good spawn from those guys. All right, so right. now the spawn's happened, and generally the male is the one to take care of the eggs, uh, no matter the breed, correct? Yeah. Actually, actually let me pick up one thing on the spawns. I, I will give, if people say I never give any information, here's one of my top secret pieces of, of cave-making information that I, no, one, no one ever knew about. Secret time. Secret time. Secret time. No one ever asks what is the material you is what is the what is the um, raw material you're using to make the cave. What is that? There's different there's different types of clay. I thought it was just potter's clay, and they just gave you what they gave you. I, I'm just taking. Yeah. I'm, I'm just getting a scene in my head from Ghost when Demi Moore and Patrick Swayze are making, you know, the pottery. You know, with a romantic. You, 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 you can for a while soon, and then come back after a while. Or, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that was a hot scene. That was a hot scene. All right, secret time. Secret time. Yeah. Okay. There's a, there's a special group of people who are insane with their with their plants. They're, or, they're orchid growers, orchid breeders. Yep. The the clay they use is, is, is highly permeable. You can actually take water and pour it into into a pot of into an orchid pot, and within about two seconds, it'll start dripping out the bottom, or it'll go through the material. That sounds like a bad pot. So it's breathable. Breathable, because again, orchids are mainly air plants. You know, they're up in the trees. They're not they're not buried in the heavy dirt. There's, there, you need to have a breathable clay for these pots to give you high, so you have more oxygen transfer. That's my big secret. Is actually, I'm actually getting water flow, nutrient flow through the porosity of the caves. So it's a balance between making sure it's breathable while making sure it's still completely dark. Right. Well, trust me, it doesn't breathable. Does that mean like you almost have holes that you can see through them? Uh, it's just, it's just, it's a totally different density um, clay material. That's incredible. You know, we started this podcast. Um, a few months ago and the, the things we wanted to do is this is highly I mean when somebody's successful they don't want to share secrets and you know we had Steve Rubicki on here from Angels Plus he shared secrets um, you know Rich and those guys are sharing secrets and what we want to do is we want to see people succeed in this hobby we want to see people succeed and uh, it's just invaluable to, to know these things it's just incredible and I want to thank you for sharing that with us I know the big two things I learned about breeding today are, you know, number one, the type of pots, how the whole process works about holding, and then just the uh, craze of keeping it hot when you're breeding. Keeping it hot, yeah. Keeping it hot. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, again, so going along the things, if you know, the secrets, a lot, of, a lot of what I find with these secrets is they're not, I mean, there's other secrets that you still don't tell, and, like, whatever I'm going with that is. Um, well, that's how we get you Miller. back on the podcast. <laughs> Yeah, um, you, know, you know Charlie Mueller. You know, basically six years ago, you know, he he really was interested in learning about Pseudocanthus, and it basically, basically was my understanding. Everything I, I learned about him, I, I trusted him, and you know, he's one who got like seventy five percent of my fish, my breeders, because he's been able to successfully start breeding them. But the thing of it was, is I wouldn't tell him exactly how to do it, because I knew if I told him exactly how to do it, it wouldn't work. And it was, it was taking us six years to to learn that. What I see is like what I see is like, as keys you must do are not necessarily the same thing. And for example, I was always breeding. Mine was always breeding 85 to 86 degree water. He had a pair that was tired of spawning, so he turned his tank down to 80. They spawned in 80 degree water, and, 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 and we could get them to do that. So, big thing is pay attention. You have to look and see what the fish are. If they're happy, you know you know when they're happy, and you just can't follow a textbook with a pseudocanthus anyway. You can't follow a you know a checklist or a textbook. Of, of this is how you do it. So, um, you know, where you, where you, I mean, you can move the cave two inches and, and change the water flow in the aquarium, and they will spawn, or they won't. It's a practice, not a uh, not something that's completely guaranteed. Exactly. Yeah, and just because it works for you doesn't mean it's going to work for me. Right. That's why it works at my house and not yours, Jimmy. Right. Well, I mean, right. You, you look at people like like Steve Rubicki from Angels Plus, and, and he says, you know, 
these are bred in my tank doesn't mean they're going to breed in your tank but i'm selling them to you as as breeder fish and you know if you, they get to my house they don't like my water or my ph is too high or they don't like my tank or it's in a high traffic area it just makes a, a world of difference compared to what other people have kept them at yeah, yeah. so now Again, we they've spawned, the males uh, taking care of them, and how long is the gestation period between fertilization and hatch? Typically, for pseudos, it's it's seven eight days to have them hatch out. So you've got basically eggs with tails, and then around fifteen day fifteen day sixteen is when I was when I would collect them because they're not quite free swimming. They still have a good size yolk you know, yolk sac um, to them, so you can catch them. But, you know, if you wait for them, I've actually left them in there to see how long it takes. It about, usually it's about 40, 45 days before the male lets them all out. And then you're down to maybe like 20 out of 500 because, you know, they all sneak out and they die or whatever because he's got to go and get a, get a meal somewhere. And so it's, is it important that the, that the, the uh, you get them out with the egg yolk sac still attached? And then that way, are you able to watch when that's absorbed so when you know when to start feeding them? Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, probably it's just, it's just easier to catch them. Oh. <laughs> If you, if you wait till they start scattering in the tank, you know, you, 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 you'll kill half of them trying to get them off the glass or trying to get them out of the caves or whatever. Okay. So it's just a very convenient time frame. Um, to, you know, the male gets frustrated, so he's about ready to give up on them anyway. And they're, they're, all, they're all in one spot. So, so do you just uh, try to get him to scoot out of the cave and you grab the cave and bring it up and, and dump the fish out? Well, actually, if you look at my Facebook page, I did. I took a video of how to how to collect them in thirty seconds or whatever. Yeah, I saw that. That's why I was. That's why I was beating you. Yep, that's exactly it. So, um, sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes, it, sometimes they're, they're you know they're tired of them. I'll grab a cave and the male will just jump out and go, "Okay, you know, your turn. You take care of them now." Other ones, you know, fiercely defend them. And that's where I came up with the idea of having a screen over the tank, and then the you know the male slides. Off the off the screen into the tank, and then you the fry fall underneath into into a tote. And so, who who is your lovely assistant that was helping you? Was that your wife? Yep. Does she have a, a, a great interest in this, or does she just help you out? Um, she has other interests, but she thought it was kind of neat just to see you know see them breed them, see them spawn, and I have to give her credit. She had the first three sort of spawns because I was. Always feeling with them too much, so I went to Brazil for three weeks. You know, she took care of them and came back, and they were they had spawned and fish. There were babies swimming in the tank. <laughs> so you're saying that she's the expert and, and you're not? Well, she just she just ignored them more than I did. Oh, there we go. And that's how my, that's how my kids uh, officially became adults. I just ignored them until they were old enough to talk. Man, I'm, I'm poor Kyle. Yeah, poor I, Kyle. I have two adult children uh, who are actually uh, friends with Robbie also, and uh, yeah, we have a lot of parenting to do <laughs> so we have a plan um jimmy uh as punishment when his kids grew up he made them uh, cut betas so he's gotta have all the betas he can possible when he babysits his grand uh, grandchildren yeah when when my kids were younger i used to uh do a lot of uh wholesaling and during the beta craze we'd have three to six hundred betas and when the kids were bad they uh, were made to cut betas from the little bags and my son, <laughs> my son now who's 28, was over the other night, saw all the bettas, and he goes, I'm out of here. That's the first thing he said. So, Jim, uh, like a few more questions. Um, for beginners, what's, what's a pseudocanthicus, uh, maybe one or two breeds that you recommend for people that are trying to start and getting into this type of fish? Probably the number the 160s are called a polka dot. Um, they're more of a, of a basic looking one, you know, they're like black with white spots. Um, they're pretty, they're pretty straightforward and that, you know, they're not very difficult to spawn. Um, and then after that, maybe, um, actually even 114s aren't that bad if you have good water quality. The big thing is, is, is the water quality and, and the, and the, um, currents for the tank. That's what, that's what the big things are. And how many, how many fry do you get out of, uh, out of those type of fish? For the if you have like about a five inch fish, you may get two hundred down the or or fifty, you know, like fifteen two hundred. That's incredible, because you know um, Adam loves the zebra plecos so much, the L forty sixes, and those only have twelve, twelve, fourteen, eight. I've yeah. even seen the six. Yeah, and, and and is that part of the reason that they're so darn expensive? Yeah, I mean, there's there's people there's literally thousands of people who have pairs, but again, when you can't get more than twelve or fifteen at a time, yeah, definitely the the demand can be, um, you know, 
you can, can, you can be unsatisfied, that's for sure. When I started in the business, I was able to get Zebra Plicos for about 30 bucks. And I remember at the time thinking, holy God, these things are so expensive. And now, <laughs> and now a, a wholesale price runs 120 to 150. I see them retail up to 200. Uh, and, and people just, they want that fish. And, the, and they're, yeah. I had one guy that ordered four of them, and he ended up with one pair out of the four, ended up with one spawn, and he was excited. But, man, he had a lot of money invested in those few fish. <laughs> yeah. So I won't be able to, uh, you know, leave without my listeners harassing me and asking you, what are some of the most colorful varieties you've ever seen? Um, you mean just in general or? Um... Yeah. the Because um, you breed the cactus ones, and those are gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, discus, obviously. Discus floored me the first time I did those. Um, I just even when they're small, how gorgeous they are. You're doing the, doing the blue diamonds back when they first came out. Oh, I meant of uh, a Placos. Yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to think of, um, there's the, trying to think of what, 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 what genus they are, but like the 397s and the, um, you know, like the those are the bright oranges and the, and the grays. And there's so many that you're just, you know, so there's, uh, there's a lot that I like. I just can't think of the well, One of my favorites. Numbers is on your website. It's an L237 Red Titanic Placo. And you can look up Red Titanic Placo on Google versus your video that you put up five years ago, and it's absolute night and day. Yep. Is that because of diet? Uh, diet and location of where it was collected from. So any, so if you grab a, a fish from one river to the next, it could be a huge difference in the quality and the color. Yes. Interesting. So, on the, also, the two rarest uh, pseudocanthicus that you've ever had. One would be the Titanic, which is the um, LDA-105. You said LDA-105? LDA-105, yeah. And that just fits one that is like the orange spots and, and black. And then, you know, I, to be honest, you know, I, got, I got it from a friend of mine at about three, four inches. I wasn't very impressed when I got to like 10 inches. Man, the color just got fantastic. And they started, you know, they started really looking, you know, really looking very pretty. And then the other expensive one was the serratus back because, again, no one had pulled them out of um, Cyrenone for so many years. And those are those go from, like, jet black to with black with white spots. So they're kind of a really neat, unique one as well. And what L is that? Uh, there is no L for it because it was it's called a serratus. So if you go to plant catfish, it would be pseudocanthicus serratus. And I don't think they ever assigned an L number for it because it was described before the L number system you know, was came into existence. There you go. Well, Jim, you also had uh, mentioned that you have some stories. What are we? What stories we're missing? Um, let's see. Well, so well, actually, I think I'll leave stories for another time. But some of the stuff that I think people might be interested to know that we're that are still working on with Charlie Mueller is I found one substrain of a of the pseudocanthus. I call it the 007. You know, it's a, it's a one fourteen variant, but they only grow to five inches max length. And I don't know why this particular group that I had were all small, all short, but I had, you know, six came in from, you know, from, from the wild. They never grew over six inches. And then the first offspring I had only grew to five, six inches. So we're trying to establish that as a, you know, as, as a line, because I think that'd be fantastic for the hobby to have a suit that stops at max growth of five inches. So then, then, you, can have, then you can use a 50 gallon and they'll have no trouble, you know, staying in the 50 gallon. That would be beautiful. So I have one question that uh, comes from uh, some of the people we've been ordering uh, bristlenose from. Apparently some uh, farmers in Florida are having issues uh, currently, and they've been investing a lot of money working with veterinarians of certain strains of bristlenose placos that when they breed, they're either extremely slow grow or won't grow past two inches, at least not in a decent enough, uh, enough time. What If you're having issues with slow grow, what do you recommend to try to do to, you know, number one, it sounds like water changes, but what other things do you recommend? Uh, you know, check the temperature and then also the quality of the food. And then also and then the other things like crowding, you know, how many fish are in the tank, you know, that, that also affects how fast they grow. You know, I, I have heard in the past, now, now that you say that, I, I had somebody that was breeding guinea pigs, of all things, which aren't fish related at all, but it, when I used to sell the pet stores, and all of a sudden their guinea pig production went way down and they started losing them, and they, and they started having some problems. And what they found out is that they changed the formula of the food, and there was no vitamin C, or not enough vitamin C in the food, and it was basically giving them 
kind of like scurvy sort of thing. And so, you know, when these companies change food uh, chemistry or the way they've been doing it, you know, just like making dog food, I would imagine that can greatly affect how fast it grows. Yeah. I had a, when I had a period of um, turquoise discus, you know, breeding period, they would, they would spawn every three weeks in a, in a common aquarium. And I had these, um, they, they were like the soft chews. They were like, they were brine or curl, you know, soft, soft chews. I don't remember who made them because they, 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 they pulled off the market. But, you know, every 33 weeks they'd spawn, no problem. And they stopped making this food and I could never get, they never spawned again after that. So by taking away their favorite food, they said, I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. Just like me, take away my cheeseburgers and suddenly I'm going to cry in the corner. Well, Jim, I appreciate your time. We've uh, definitely exhausted over an hour here with you, and we want to have you on for another podcast. And uh, maybe we can talk more about uh, those uh, secret stories you want to want to tell us next time. Okay. For the listeners, we're just going to uh, let you know that if you have questions for Jim for uh, next episode or if you have something you want to send us to it directly, go to AquariumGuysPodcast.com. On the bottom of the website, we either have our telephone number and you can leave us a voicemail. Or we can air on uh, on the podcast live. Or just send us a direct email right on the bottom of the page, and we'd be happy to get that uh, directly to Jim. Otherwise, certainly check out uh, Pseudo Smart on YouTube and Facebook. And Jim, do you, do you, are you selling fish... Uh, currently, right now? No, like I said, I actually have zero fish in my in my basement right now. Okay. Well, I wish I did, but unfortunately, I don't. Yeah. Well, that's one of the first questions we get from people is, is where can I get his stuff? And yeah. uh, it's just good to know um, that you've had a downsize uh, because of health complications and stuff, and that's totally understandable. But I just want to thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for all the information you've given us and the time. It's greatly appreciated. He's going to go home sure. and turn up the uh, temp on his tanks. <laughs> well, if, you, if, you, if, that, if that's all you need, that would be great. And you know, Again, there are, there are people who have my, we have my breeders, and rather than speak for them, I'm hoping that they'll be you know, sp- you know, spouting up here in the next you know, six months with, you know, hey, I've got some of these fish for sale. That's what I'm really hoping, but I'm not going to you know, go speaking for them and um, you know, I don't know how they're Well, when that happens, you let us know. We're going to put the word out. We're going to help out. We, we're here to help the entire aquarium industry we want people to succeed so it sounds good some uh, reminders please share this uh, with your friends we want uh, more people listening in and then subscribe in your uh, favorite platform but please give us a call we uh we love your communication on our uh email or voicemails we've been getting a lot in and just one more reminder trans shippers please contact us apparently there's a lot of people looking uh, for you and there's not a lot of ways for them to find you So uh, let us know, and thanks again, guys. We will see you on the next podcast. Let's kick that outro. Thanks, guys, for listening to this podcast. Please visit us at AquariumGuysPodcast.com and listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, and anywhere you can listen to podcasts. We're practically everywhere. We're on Google. I mean, just go to your favorite place, Pocket Casts subscribed make sure it gets push notifications directly to your phone otherwise jim will be crying in his sleep can, can i listen to it in the in my tree house in your tree house in your fish room even alone at work what about my man cave especially your man cave yeah only if adam's there no with feeder guppies no, no. they're endlers you midget loving sucking mother <laughs> <laughs> well i guess we'll see you next time <laughs> later